This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we need to be having these conversations out loud in public, especially in this moment in history. Today, we are welcoming Tiana Dodson. Tiana Dodson is a fat body liberation coach who's out to destroy the belief that you have to be skinny to be happy and healthy. Through her work with One Beautiful Yes and the Live Your Best Fat Life program, she guides people feminine of center to reconnect with their bodies through pragmatic self-care practices so they can come to see that there is nothing wrong with living in a fat body. Welcome, Tiana. Hi, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. So I was originally going to have us start with a little outline of your work, and we'll get to that. But as we were getting set up for this call, we got into immediately into some fantastic conversation. And so I wanted to pull us back to that because that's that's what's right there for us right now. So we were talking a little bit about the ways in which I said to Tiana, you know, okay, so... It sounds like you're probably an intensive, although I don't know you really well enough to make that call. And Tiana was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And then we were talking about how projects get us kind of twisted around because um, – because we love to do the content. Like I love doing these interviews. I love these conversations, but then having to do the post-production is like this terrible grind. And mm-hmm. so – um, and, and, um, you know, and, and it's a, Tana, you said you have a podcast too, right? I do. I have a podcast that's kind of just there. I'm like, I'm doing nothing with it. It's called, it's called the one beautiful yes podcast. And it's just, it just sits there. It does nothing. I don't really update it. I don't keep track of it. I don't, um, I don't market it. It's just, it's just a thing that exists. In so the why world. don't. Would you like to change that? <laughs> I would totally like to change that. Excellent. Why don't you tell people where they can find it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate that. So um, you can find it on my website, um, which is tianadotson.com, T-I-A-N-A-D-O-D-S-O-N.com, uh, backslash podcast dash two, because podcast itself, for some reason, was not available on my website or you can find it on anywhere you listen to um, your podcasts on things like uh, Apple podcasts and Spotify and so on and so forth. Excellent. And I'm sorry, I've been mispronouncing your name. You said it's Tiana. Yeah, it's Tiana, like Diana with a T. Fabulous. Okay. Tiana, my apologies. So, so where's the place where you get stuck in, in, producing and putting your podcast out in the world. Okay. Hmm. This is probably going to be a long story. Um, but then I say that and then I'm like, maybe it's actually not a long story at all. So I get really excited. Like I'm going to do this. I'm going to reach all these people. I'm going to put my message out there. It's so great. I have such an amazing thing to say today. That's on my chest and I'm going to let it go. But I can't just hit record. (laughs) Um, that doesn't work for me because I have kind of this 
I mean, it's, it's something like a, like a stage fright, you know, like, um, I'm going to hit record and I'm just going to ramble my head off. And, um, it's because there's no feedback from anybody else besides myself. And I think I'm doing great. So like, you know, there's no, no weird faces to stop me. Um, and so when I start recording just, you know, top of mind, um, and like, free form recording, it just goes on forever. And then I end up rambling. So instead of doing that, um, I script. And so I don't actually like writing. It takes forever for me. It's a long process. And um, by the time I'm finished with a script, um, that's the part that always trips me up. That's the part that always takes the most time because recording the script, like reading what I wrote into the microphone, um, is like usually one and done, or sometimes I do a second run just to, you know, like, okay, I need more energy or something. But essentially, like, I do very few edits because I want to sound like a human being. I don't need to be perfect. And um, like, that's that, you know, I add on my stupid little intro and I give a call to action and boom, it's done. But like writing that script and actually like, just doing that part is so overwhelming, just overwhelming. So would you like to know what I learned about this and being an intensive and claiming my power and authority? Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Cause you know, I'm going to bring this back to power, right? Like, so, <laughs> so first of all, I am really fond of the phrase, God, give me the courage or the chutzpah or the, confidence of a mediocre white man oh love it <laughs> right like if if i just ask myself would a mediocre white man put this out there and i'm like yeah yeah he would <laughs> and like, okay, then probably i need to get off my butt and do this even though it's not going to be perfect because I tend to hold myself to this super high standard, right? Does it work? No, it does not. Because what happens is I shut myself down before I even get started. So that's number one. Number two, oh. I did, I did a, um, a series of Facebook posts. I don't know if you saw them all during August, every single day I got on Facebook between nine and 10 o'clock on Facebook live. And I did um, a Facebook live about some aspect of my framework and my work. Um, you know, helping folks who are intensives figure out that they're intensives, helping intensives figure out how to operate better in a business context, helping people who are not intensives figure out how to operate better with intensives in a business context, because they're intensives and expansives, right? So I was doing all of this mm -hmm. content production. There's no way I could have scripted that. I just, I oh, would man. never, like you, I would never have sat down and written 30 scripts for 30 days of Facebook Lives. That's just not a thing. Mm -hmm. So no. instead what I did was I wrote an outline and I told myself that it wasn't going to run over an hour. It could be less than an hour, but it couldn't be more than an hour. Wow. And, and I just got on there and I spoke from notes. And I found that, pretty effective. I would sometimes if I thought there was an area where I was likely to run long, I'd be like, I'd put a little time note, like you should be about 30 minutes in when you do this. Oh my <laughs> no gosh, more so than 30 minutes in. <laughs> but, but so simple, right? So lightweight, because it's not writing yeah. a script. It's like I have five no. points I want to make. This is the middle point. So I should be about midway through <laughs> when I make it. 
And if I'm not, then I should, you know, hurry things up, adjust things. Now, I have experience doing some of that because I have training as a preacher. Right? I was a parish mm. minister for four years and I went to seminary for four years before that and did some field work. So I have about six years of pulpit experience plus what I've done since mm -hmm. I left the parish, which I did in 2010, which is ridiculously long ago now. Um, <laughs> ten, years. 10 years. I've been out of the pulpit for 10 years. Um, mm. But... But even then, you know, I do guest preaching. I do, you know, go into congregations to help them with this kind of work. And so I do mm -hmm. that stuff. So so I have some experience uh, with a little bit of on-the-fly adjustment. And I've been running workshops since I was 15. <laughs> so oh, I have wow. that. But but ultimately, it's a, a, it's a learnable skill. And B, it's just not that hard. You just right. put it up right. there and you put your put your time markers in there and then you just talk. And if you get to a point where you're like, oh, crap, I've been going on way too long about this, you can say that because it's a podcast, right? You can yeah. say, oh, oh, and I just noticed the time. I've clearly been talking about, I'm clearly, I'm passionate about this because I've been talking about it for 45 minutes <laughs> and I really want to get to the other things on my list. So I'm going to make a really abrupt transition here and I'm really sorry about that, but here we go because I really want to move on, right? Like you can just be super authentic. And to me, that's the most powerful position to take. Mm, I love it. Okay, so Lila just came in here and just saved my podcast. Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you are so welcome. Like, because I, I want to have these conversations about power in public yeah. and out loud and where people can hear them because I think we don't talk about the consequences of ceding mm -hmm. our power silently. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's, that's, I mean, amazing. I mean, I love that you just said that ceding our power um, silently because your first question, you know, as a, as a lovely segue um, was what are the three most interesting things about power for me? Mm -hmm. And, um, and one of them was how those in power are capable of convincing others that they have none. And also how these other people are so ready to receive that message and accept it as truth. And that is that silent secession of power. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been working on in my life like in the last year or two is owning that I do have power, even though I'm a mm. queer trans person of color. <laughs> I um, you know, I still hold power. I hold institutional power in some ways. I have a, you know, the educational background, the privilege of the way I grew up. I, I have a bunch of power from that, but then I also have power because of who I am. Mm -hmm. And exactly. I have, you know, my, <laughs> <laughs> One of my partners and I have been working on like, you know, they keep saying to me, you, I mean, you might think that you're not attractive, but you're just wrong. Yeah. You're just wrong and you need to bring your brain up to date because your brain is wrong. Like, and I'm not wrong very often. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. That's a but, power, that's powerful. Yeah, it really is. And and then owning the fact that if all right, let's suppose that 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 they're right and that I'm powerful in this way. 
right? Let's, let's suppose that they're right and I'm attractive, which means that a bunch of people think that I'm the more attractive person in the conversation. And in our culture, we have this whole thing with attractiveness, right? Where whoever's more attractive is given the power to accept or reject. Yes. And so when we move that power to the other person in the conversation, because we think we have evaluated them as more attractive than us on some kind of bizarre, you know, single scale <laughs> of attractiveness, right? right? We've moved right. that person into that position. And then if I think I'm less attractive, then I don't approach them. I wait for them to approach me. I wait for them to open the conversation. I wait for them to open the door, whatever it is, because I've decided that they're the one who has the right in our culture to make that call, to decide that I'm worthy of attention or not. Mm. There's, I mean, and there's so many opportunities that are lost that way. You know, I mean, this is the kind of situation that, that maybe, you know, 10 years down the line, you might be lucky enough to find out like, oh, yeah, you know, when we met that one time. I thought you were so hot, but I didn't say anything because I didn't know. And, um, right? you know, that you were interested in me. And, and then you're like, oh, my God, lost opportunity. You would have been so awesome as a partner, <laughs> you know. And like, that's the kind of thing that happens. And this is so great. Like, this conversation is going so far away from where I expected it to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, <laughs> but I really love how it's like dovetailing so well into my work for the simple fact that like attractiveness is, is a system of oppression, <laughs> you know, or, or, or it's, it's, it's a part of a system of oppression where we have placed value on how people look or how, how, how this certain style and kind of look um, right now in our culture, which is, you know, like um, for, for feminine um, people uh, it's like, uh, you know, small waist, large hips, big butt, big breasts, you know, but, but, but not too big and not too small. And, you know, like it has to be shaped correctly and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so people are going and getting injections and, and all kinds of surgeries and things. And these are the people that are deemed attractive. Their faces have to look just so they have to be wearing this style of makeup, you know, they have to be trendy and on and, 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 um, and there's just so many, requirements that are just so superficial and require you to take so much time out of your day and your life and just place energy um, into the maintenance of these things. You can't just show up and be who you are and be deemed attractive unless you're one of those people who have won the genetic lottery currently and you just look like that because you were just, you know, assembled in that way but basically like how much time are we wasting how much energy are we wasting trying to achieve something that is only rewarding people like just just a handful of people and making the rest of us feel like shit um that's no good well and and i there are a couple pieces here you're saying so much good stuff there are a couple pieces here that i really want to pull out and look at a little more closely because one of them is this idea that there's a single attractive model right? In reality, different people are attracted to different things. So true. So true. Someone I worked with, God, now almost seven years ago, when I started working with him, he was firmly convinced that the only way he was ever going to find anybody who wanted to be in partnership with him and relationship with him was if he lost like an enormous amount of weight and yeah. also like basically had to restructure his entire self. And that's not a thing. Like 
he's not particularly tall. He's never going to be. His face is a particular shape. He's going bald. Like there are things that are just going to be true about him. And none of those things were things that he thought fit in. And, and this dovetails with something else I wanted to bring up, which is that the, there are also requirements for masculine people and, as yeah. I move more masculine in my gender expression, I'm finding out how, like, at least it's a, it, it's acceptable for feminine people to spend time on those things. It's not really culturally mm-hmm. acceptable for masculine mm-hmm. people to spend time on them. And so the, the oppression with masculine people is you're supposed to just wake up like that. Yeah. You're yeah. supposed and to wake up like that. How and- your hair. Yeah. Yeah. Just run your fingers through your hair and like splash some water in your face and you're good. Right, like that aftershave commercial, right? Where like <laughs> the, the classic aftershave commercial where the guy is like leaning over the sink and he splashes some aftershave on his face and he like basically walks out the door. And so there's mm-hmm. there's this thing about feminine people are supposed to spend an inordinate amount of time making themselves attractive for the world and masculine people are not except in the gym. But even then there's like the gym rat right. thing, right? So you can't get too right. into it. And you can't no. be too into your appearance. And yet we spend all this time in a world that really appreciates aesthetics. Now, this is a little different mm-hmm. in France. I spent. It is and it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I, I realized like, I, said, I said that before knowing which way you were going with your difference, but, but basically like, um, in France, I have noticed, like, like we have this uh, in the West, you know, like in the United States. I'm from the United States, but I happen to live in France because my husband is French. Um, but, ooh, there's a story there. But, but basically, um, we have this perception that French people are, like, beautiful and well put together and accessorized and so fashionable. And essentially... Yes, but no, because like that's everybody <laughs> in the world, you know. Um, to put on to be accessorized and fashionable is more about your choices of what you put on your body, how you wear them. Um, and like an accessory is like you took a scarf and you threw it around your neck, or you wore a necklace or some bracelets or some such thing, then you're accessorized, boom. Um, but like, uh, um, them being fashionable and things. I mean, I think it, it's more a mythos and in France, I have to say lives off its mythos, but, but basically it's, it's more this myth. It's really good marketing because Paris is this like place of fashion um, where, you know, like all of the big designer, not all of them, but like a lot of the big designer names are French, you know, everybody's wearing a, uh, these, these red bottom shoes, uh, you know, the Le Boutons or whatever. And um, don't ask me to go further on that because I'm not a fashion person. I don't know much more <laughs> than that. But, but basically, like, a lot of the names are French. A lot of the f- houses are in Paris and, and so on and so forth. And so, like, it seems as if it is, I mean, and in some ways, yes, it is a is center of fashion in the world. But the people of France on on a whole, I don't find them any more fashionable than anywhere else. Um, though there is a, 
<sighs> well, mostly also, this is personal experience. I mean, I basically married into a family that like I was expecting to have like, you know, a very, very fashionable French mama and, and like have to like, you know, dress for dinner and so on and so forth. And besides the fact that like when we sit down for a meal, it is a meal of courses. So it's not like, you know, what we generally do in, in America where you sit down and like all the plates are on the table and you just eat. Um, like, you know, you have the, you have the entree. So like you eat your little whatever it is. And then, you know, generally we change plates and then we sit down for the main course and we eat that and then we change plates and then there's, you know, cheese and, and uh, dessert and, you know, and, and so it's like, for that it's really fancy but basically like you know they're essentially like (laughs) to be (laughs) to be lovingly pejorative they're like hicks you know (laughs) the family that i married into um you know they're they're like they're from um a more rural town like a, a smaller town um in the in the south the southern uh south of france and and like um you know, they do like normal people's stuff, you know, not like fancy people's stuff. They, they enjoy things like motocross. And um, I didn't actually know what motocross was before I married into this family. You know, um, they like to hang out in their garden and like, um, and, and do and dig and, and things like that. They wear like, uh, fleece vests when it's cold outside. I mean, like they're normal salt, you know, just normal salt of the earth people, normal working class people. And there's like zero fancy about the family that I married into, which in many ways is like, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> because I wasn't prepared for fancy. It's <laughs> not who I am. It's not how I was raised. But, um, but like, you know, as I've lived here, there's a lot of these like myths that we, that I was raised up understanding about what France was. And I realized like, these things are not true. I mean, my work focuses on fatness, for example. And France has like, oh, we are the thinnest country in all of Europe. And I'm looking around and I'm like, there are so many fat people here. And like, not just like, oh, a little bit lumpy, but like, appreciably fat people you know and i'm like whoa y'all are lying to yourselves and the world um and i guess like maybe you know maybe on a like a statistical scale or something yeah okay maybe they're thinner than the rest of europe but like i moved here last uh no not last year because it's 2020 now i moved here in 2018 um from germany and uh in Germany, like the majority of the people that I got to know who were German, um, they just lived a kind of sportier lifestyle where um, the town that I was living in, in Northeastern Germany, uh, people would bicycle as often as they could. Like they're taking their bike to and from work. My neighbor across the hall, um, he he worked uh, five kilometers away and this man regardless of the weather, the time of day he was going to work or coming home, he was riding his bicycle to and from work. I have ne- I've never seen that man in a car, like never. And I lived there eight years. Um, and so like, uh, you know, Germans are just sportier. The French are less sporty. They're much more American in the way that they do things by car. 
And um, so, yeah, I've just drummed on about my experience in France for a long time now. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though. I mean, I could have cut you off, but but I didn't want to because I I think that it's important for people in the United States to get our heads out of our asses a bit and understand that different cultures do things differently, and yet there are commonalities. Both of those things are true. Uh-huh. And where I was going to go when I brought up France is that when I was and obviously I have a lot less experience in France than you do. When I was 19, I spent a, a term um, at the University in Po um, and on a foreign exchange program. And not, well, it was a study abroad program with my college that was largely focused on language immersion. Um, but there is obviously there's a cultural immersion that goes with that. We were staying in homestay, yeah. families not in a dorm, and and that sort of thing. We had four generations right. of families coming to Sunday dinner, so I know what you're talking about when you're like, everyone's <laughs> coming courses. Sunday dinner was four courses. Regular <laughs> dinner was three or four, and <laughs> and and that was a huge adjustment for me because no, that in all of the like pre-trip cultural preparation they did for us, that was not a thing they'd really explained. Um, but, um. but the thing that I notice, so I went when I was 19, I'm 44 now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's been a few years. And, and the thing that I noticed, right. Looking back the things that I realize influenced me looking back when I just from that 10 weeks that I spent there, there are two things. One was um, that I found that Ameri- in, in the United States, life is an interruption of work. Mm. And in France, work was an interruption of life. Huge difference. Yes, that that's that's very, very true. And it completely changed the way my brain worked, and my brain has never reverted. Mm. Which I'm really glad for, right? And it's that's one of the things that makes me go. I really need to get back to Europe. <laughs> I really need to get. Oh, I spent um, I spent 13 weeks in Portugal much more recently in 2011, and I and I mm. still long for that experience. But the thing with the thing with beauty in France and power and place and culture that was hard, really hard for me in the moment when I was 19 and I had never been abroad by myself before, although my father is Indian, so I'd been abroad before. Um, Mm -hmm. And certainly not for a long period of time to go live somewhere else. The thing that was hardest for me was that the, this cultural expectation of beauty this cultural, the, the, what I what I found, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but what I found was that there's a a cultural uh, that beauty is on a much higher level. It's much more valued than it is in the United States. In the United States, I think we have we have a, a value around innovation and independence and scrappiness. Like those are all things that we really hold in high esteem and sometimes to our detriment. And in France, I found that there was this real attention to beauty. Hmm. Okay. That's an interesting thing because I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong at all. I think that there's a little bit of nuance in there because in the United States, like we actually do place a premium on beauty. Um, Like, yes, we want, 
you to be innovative and scrappy. But if you happen to be beautiful while doing it, we really appreciate that so much more. (laughs) Absolutely. So much more power. Like you're, you're so much easier to listen to and to accept into our circles when you're beautiful in the United States. Um, Whereas in France, I think it it matters less how you look and how you present and more about what you are. No, maybe, no, I think I'm lying there. I think I'm lying there, but, um, but basically, but basically there, there is an an aesthetic here um, in France. For example, for example, I'm, um, we're currently, um, in process of getting a house built um, because we just I just happen to be that privileged so I'm very very thankful of it and um, so we are we're getting a house built and something that really bothers me <laughs> is uh, not being able to be unique and unfortunately because we're buying part of this project um, of six houses um, our house, basically on the outside looks like everyone else's house uh, in the project. And that frustrates the crap out of me. So I was like, okay, what options do I have to make my house different from the others? Um, And one of the things was like, I can choose from this palette of colors to put on the outside of the house. And I was like, fantastic. I want my house to be green or blue. And the answer to that was kind of, um, well, we're going to have to check with the, with the, um, uh, what is the word in English? Um, Like the mayor, we're going to have to check with the mayor's office because the mayor's office is okaying. Like they have oversight over the whole project. So like um, they had, they determined that our houses needed to be a certain shape and a certain size and so on and so forth. And that's like so frustrating. It's like, hold on, we're buying, we're building a house instead of buying a house so that we can, you know, express more creativity and, and, and have it be more our hours and you're telling me that I have to get my choices approved by the freaking mayor which is just frustrating but basically they have this whole thing where they don't want to break the aesthetic each right. region in France has its own like um like tradition and and like its own traditional look and feel and they're very 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 uh, big on conserving that. France is very, very, con- very conservative um, about like their identity, who they were, who they have been, and they want to carry that out into the future. Um, which is 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 in some way very, some ways very noble, and all and in many other ways like just a big blockade in the way of progress and trying to like be innovative. Um, So it's like frustrating because like my house is probably going to end up being the same kind of white off white as all the other houses because they want all the houses in the area to have the same kind of look. (laughs) I'm just like, ugh, frustrating. Now to be fair, in the United States, we have similar things where, especially true, like cute New England downtowns, will have rules about signage so that Walmart <laughs> can't put up a giant blue billboard. And Walmart finds that frustrating, but it preserves, yeah. quote, pre- preserves the character of the town, right? And we could talk, we could go down a whole other rabbit hole about gatekeeping and cultural centers of power. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, we're never going to get back to the stuff that you work on. So, <laughs> um, so many things, but but what I say that that there's a, a 
a value of beauty, I I meant that more globally. So exactly what you were talking about, like not just how a person looks, but also how a space looks, how a how a house looks, how a neighborhood looks. Like yeah, exactly. Like like we're we're being we're being forced to plant a row of fruit trees in the back of our lot. So um, we weren't told that when we bought into the thing, Um, but then it was like brought up later. Like yeah, it would be nice if you would do that, and it was and I was like yeah yeah that'd be super. We could totally think about that. And then they were like yeah, but we mean like you need to. And it was like right. oh. and 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 that's also like that's an intensive expansive cultural thing where intensives are like if you want me to do something you got to tell me straight out like new york city style and expansives expansives will be like you would have gotten the same thing in minnesota is what i'm saying (laughs) i spent six years i I know i know this Oh my gosh. I, I know this is like, it, it's a universal experience. Cause like I've been watching these design shows on Netflix. Um, and I know like it's a thing kind of everywhere where they want to preserve, you know, like national character, but it, I don't know if it's just because I'm going through it right now or if it's like just really, really strong in France. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It's probably a combination. I mean, uh, you know, France also has an organization whose whole job is to preserve the character of the French language. And if the United States oh. tried to do that with English, everybody would laugh uproariously oh. because as my, as um, one of my partners says, you know, English is the language that rifles through other languages pockets for loose change. You know, that's how <laughs> English is constructed. <laughs> and so, and we'll just borrow anything willy nilly that seems like a good word that we don't have a word for yet. We're like, oh, oh yeah, give me that, which is why we have moose, right? Which doesn't pluralize like anything else because we borrowed it from an Aboriginal language. Yeah. Like, that's perfect. why everybody else it calls it like big deer, and we're like, no, it's completely not related to the word deer because oh. somebody else oh had you know. And and so so we have this. I mean, and all of this. I'm going to bring us back to power. All of this. Yeah. All of this is about who gets to determine what's normative. Exactly. And who gets to determine what's preferable. Yes. Yes. And so the and question that's, that's is. Huge. Yeah. So the question is that we are, you know, 35 minutes into talking and I haven't had you tell us what you do yet. So why don't you do that? Yeah. So, so I'm a fat body liberation coach. Um, and that both describes me because I am a fat person. Um, but it also describes like the bent of my work, which is I'm here to liberate fat bodies. And And what my work is essentially is taking people who are feminine of center and like helping them find practical ways to break free of the oppressive system that is fatness equals unhealthy, fatness equals unattractive, fatness equals unworthy, fatness equals um, like incapable, break down all of that crap and embrace who they really are so that they can live the life that they want to live the way they want to live it. Um, Because there are so many things that we're keeping ourselves back from because like we were speaking earlier, because we don't fit into whatever the normative beauty standard is. 
And that's just crap. It's just crap. Life is so limited and there's so much we need to be doing and we can be doing that we are not doing because we're being held back by this unfair, ridiculous standard. Right. And so that brings us back to A, who sets the standard and B, who decides that's the only standard. I have to tell you, there is no way I could be going through this conversation about whether or not I'm attractive like I could not, and and that's I like that's a really tender thing for me to say. I know I'm saying it kind of flippantly, but it's really tricky to say these things in public. Um, and and I could never be going through that if I were still trying to fit into the feminine ideal. I know you work with feminine of center people, and I that's like that's super important. But when I figured out that. I was genderqueer and that my gender identity was in fact like figuring out my gender identity was the key to figuring out that I didn't have to feel unattractive all the time. And it's not because I fit mm. into a cultural standard, like the cultural standard of attractiveness. Cause I don't, it's because it, it's because there's more room in the place where we belong. And so part mm. of it is finding where you belong. Hell yeah. Oh my gosh. So I have chills. And (laughs) as you've said that, like, I'm just, I'm just like, so warm and excited by these statements that you're making. And that's because number one, they're like, so part and parcel of my work. But number two, like, I'm just so excited that you're finding this for yourself. And that is, that is one of the things that gives me the fire to do this work is when I hear people finding themselves um, outside of the rigid, the rigidity of what is quote unquote normal. And I just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's how we know that we found our right work. Right. When I'm, when I'm mm. intensive and they're like, Oh my God, that's me. When you said before we started and, and I said that, you know, out of every 16 projects we start, we finish like two and you started laughing. I was like, ding, that's, that's the dopamine hit. I need to keep doing the work. <laughs> oh yes. Oh yes. So mm. when you, when you look at this whole structure of the work that you do and especially with feminine folks who are also fat like how do you how do you see power manifesting what do you see where do you see power having the most influence and where do you think ethics ties into it where do you think morality or ethics is part of the story whether it's artificial morality and ethics that's being imposed or the morality and ethics that we kind of need to bring to our conversations. Okay. So I want to start by saying um, that's unfair (laughs) for you to ask me this (laughs) without prior preparation. This was not on my sheet of questions. Oh no. Um, Oh my. Okay. I I Um, tend to be very organic about these interviews as you can tell. (laughs) Mm, I can see. I'm going to have to shoot from the cuff here. Okay. So, oh my goodness. So first and foremost, like I, I focus on feminine of center people and that's because my work is based on my own experience, my own lived experience. I identify as a woman. Um, and like, I, (sighs) I know that a lot of beauty things are focused on women and specifically people on the feminine side of the frame. Um, 
And so like, I can only take that and use that. And I'm trying to stay in my lane very much because I have never lived as a masculine person. So I don't want to speak to them and damage them or harm them in any way. So, um, I mean, I think that's actually, (laughs) that's a question. That's, 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 that's that's speaking about ethics in, in a way as well, right there. Um, I do my work based in my own lived experience. This is what I know. I'm working from what I know. Um, And I'm not trying to pretend that I know anyone else's experience. I'm only talking from the experience that I know um, and that I have lived. And I think that that is very important um, when you're doing transformational work. Not saying that you can't learn or anything like that, because I'm constantly learning, I'm constantly researching, I'm constantly um, trying to understand the experience of, for example, transgender people or non-binary people. Um, And, uh, you know, or people who like haven't figured out where they are on the spectrum. Um, I'm trying to learn from them and I'm trying to understand as best as I can without having had lived experience, what their experience is. However, I also understand that my role is to be a guide. um, And so I can lead from where I'm at, but I also have to have the humility to know that I can only lead from where I'm at. Um, In addition, like, I don't know better than you yourself know about who you are, what you want, and what you can do. Um, I always have to trust the authority of the person or people that I'm working with um, because I don't live their life. And maybe something I have done personally worked really well for me. And I can use that as a place to start. But maybe that doesn't work for you because of your cultural identity. Maybe it doesn't work for you because of your financial situation. Maybe that doesn't work for you because, um, you know, you, you don't identify um, with my lived experience, you know? And, and so like with that, I always have to remember and stay in that place of humility um, that I can only offer guidance, but, I am here to hold your hand as my client um, and help you find what works best for you. And so in that place where you are working out of your own experience and simultaneously holding that, you know, slightly aside um, Uh, almost observational role, right? At least for me, coaching has a very observational component where somebody will tell me what's going on and I listen to them and then I say, oh, it sounds like this is what's going on. (laughs) Right. And I provide that reflection that's slightly outside of the middle of everything reflection that allows them to see what needs to happen next. And, And so in that, in that work, with specifically with with the transformational piece, what are some of the barriers that you see um, yourself or your clients coming up against in terms of systemic power? Oh gosh, ooh, that's that's a big one. Um, this is 
this is the hardest part, right? Because um, fatness is something that cannot be disguised. Um, it doesn't matter how I dress or how I style my clothes or what accessories I'm wearing or how I walk or whatever. Um, but you're so fashionable. You're, you're French. French. You're, right. I mean, I'll be fashionable. I'm not fashionable. <laughs> um, but basically, regardless of how fashionable I am or how or how well made up I am, which I, I'm not, but basically, if it, regardless, if I if I hit all the points um, of quote unquote uh, uh, acceptable beauty, um, ideal beauty, regardless of that, I'm still fat, and you're gonna see that as soon as I show up. You know, there is no hiding your fatness, um, regardless of how many waist trainers or Spanx or whatever, I'm still going to be fat. Like it is what it is. Um, and so like, I am always battling all of the perceptions that people have about fatness when I show up physically. Um, or if they're seeing, if they see a photo of me and they have negative feelings about fatness, they're going to transfer those to me. They're going to expect that of me. Um, you know, I mean, back in the days of online dating, um, where, you know, you meet some, I mean, ah, yeah, <laughs> geez, back in those days, um, I would, some people like, are still doing it. Someone, I mean, some people are still doing it, but it's like, it's, it's a totally different world nowadays it's so easy it's i don't know if it's so easy but i mean i think uh, some of the problems are the same especially for fat people um where like you i mean you used to put like one picture up or maybe two pictures and of course their head and shoulders the most beautiful picture you can find of yourself um and then like you talk on the phone with this person for however long and then you finally agree to meet and like there are so many times that i got hit with the uh oh well i mean you didn't sound fat and it's like, what is what, that? What? What is, <laughs> what does fatness sound like? I just, I don't know. Um, and you know, right. or, and, and, or for, they, and for so long, for so long, the programs wouldn't, the the apps wouldn't even give you the opportunity to say that you were fat. No, not at all. And so like, you, you couldn't, you, you like, couldn't even I'm warn me. people. I often be like, look, if you can't handle this, then you can't handle me. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you know, I it, they they didn't do that. They was like, you know, you have a large build or, or something like, you know, something really, really esoteric, something ridiculous that didn't really tell you anything about my actual body size. Like, and and so that was always really hurtful and 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 terrible because like you cannot disguise fatness and fatness is what it is. And it, it is always there with you. Um, and, and so like, you always have to battle that first, you know, um, like people carry biases with them everywhere they go because it just is how we are as human beings. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a survival strategy, I'm, I'm quite sure, um, where we have preconceived notions about certain things. Like, oh, you know, for a lot of people, dark skin means be more cautious around these people. Or, you know, like, like I was saying earlier, fatness means this person is probably slow. You know, they don't have any willpower or control. Hide your candy, put it in the drawer, you know, things like that. And, and, um, and so, like, one of the hardest parts of um, doing the work that I do is the fact that in spite of how much 
work, how much progress you do on yourself and how you think about yourself, the world around you has not changed. So um, I developed a framework. I didn't know I was developing a framework, but but I was going through... <laughs> But I realized I was going through a, a process with each of my clients, which actually was a was a surprisingly similar process. Um, and, and the third step of the process, so the first step is education, because you need to first learn about the systems of oppression that are surrounding you. Because if you don't know that you're being oppressed, you can't work against that. You cannot free yourself from it. Um, so you can't, you know, you can't battle a system you don't know exists mm-hmm. or that you don't, or, or that you don't understand and you cannot see. So education is the first step of the framework. The second step of the framework is um, reframing. So like the oppressive systems are telling us things um, and conditioning us in certain ways to think certain ways about certain things, um, which is just a word salad way of thinking, a word salad way of saying that the oppressive system is telling us that fatness is not healthy. A fat body is not a healthy body. A fat body is a sick body. Um, A fat body is an undesirable body. This is what the system is telling us. And so we have to reframe these things, you know, um, find a a way. Yeah. So how do you flip the script? How do you flip the script? I mean, basically the, the basic question is, is it true? Are you lazy because you're fat? Is that really true? You know, and a lot of the, the times the answer is not, yes, I'm lazy because I'm fat. It's usually, no, I'm not lazy. You know, I'm not lazy. I really want to go to the gym because I enjoy going to the gym. I feel really good when I'm on the treadmill and I'm dancing and dance walking to my music, but I don't like being there because people are looking at me funny or, or like, um, you know, they're, they're coming over and doing obnoxious things like congratulating me for, for getting off the couch, you know, or like it's uncomfortable because they don't have a facility um, where it's comfortable for me to change, you know? Um, And so I don't like going to the gym because I don't like that experience. Well, that has nothing to do with you. None of that has anything to do with you. None of that is you being lazy. That is you being put into a situation where other people are making it an uncomfortable situation for you. So are you lazy because you don't want to go to the gym because you don't want to be um, microaggressed and macroaggressed? No, that's not laziness. That's a shit system in your way. So it's, it's a shit system. Me. And also when I hear heavily loaded words like lazy, I, I like that's where I go immediately. I'm like the power of language is so intense and so insidious. And, you know, in my in my work, I talk all the time about how we talk about acting civilized, right? What does it mean to act mm. civilized? What does it mean to act mature, right? All these words are coded for expansiveness. They're coded for the, the kind of normative, little bit of, a little bit at a time, very moderated kind of way of being, which is not how intensives function. And... Right. So when we have big emotions, they're like, please leave the room until you're willing to act civilized. (laughs) And, and you look at all the layers of imperialism and colonialism and racism and prejudice that are embedded in that one phrase. Mm -hmm. And, and it like, you know, 
a third of my book is on that, but really I could write a whole another book on it. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, when I hear the word lazy, first of all, I hear a whole bunch of stuff that's encoded with, with intensiveness and expansiveness. Like there's this intersection between your work and my work in that place, because intensives tend yeah. to work super hard and then rest super hard. We work like we work like hell, and then we rest like the dead. That's one of the major characteristics. That's one of the easiest ways to spot an intensive. You're laughing. <laughs> oh, I love it because that's true, <laughs> <laughs> and, right? And so when when expansives who like to work a little bit every t- every day, you know, they're the people who do it like our teacher in third grade told us to do it. When expansives. Mm-hmm. When expansives are are judging intensives, which they do a lot because expansives are, you know, two-thirds of the population and also expansives are backed up culturally oh. and intensives are not, right? There's all um, – I, I could – I did talk for almost 30 hours on this or 15 hours. I think I managed to keep most of my videos to 30 minutes, but um, – but yeah, those are on my professional and my personal Facebook pages. So they, anybody who wants to find that library of stuff can find it. But it's so uh. so there's there's this thing about expansives looking at intensives when intensives are in their rest like the dead phase and saying, well, you're lazy. You're not living up to your potential. You're not working up to your full, you know, your full capacity. And so when we get hired into companies, what happens is they hire us. And of course, we're going to present at the, in the go phase, I say intensive, go intensive, stop, right? We're going to, we're going to present in the go phase when we're in the interview, obviously, and we're going to show up in that and we're going to work like hell. We're going to work 14, 15 hours, days, sleep under our desk, like whatever it is that we need to do because we're super into the project we're working on. And then we're going to come to the end of that project and we're going to need that rest. And so we're going to barely show up. We're going to show up late. We're going to go home early. We're going to, you know, take long lunches. Or if we're in a flexible enough workplace, we're just going to call out for a week and a half. Because Mm -hmm. that's the reality. Like, let's be real. I put in 60 hours in, in, you know, four days. Now I'm going to take a break. And and yeah. expansives tend to say that, oh, no, you're being lazy because you're not coming in. And and because expansives see responsibility and participation as ass and chair. Mm. And, and showing up every day, that consistent presence is really important to expansives, whereas the results are really important to intensives. If I got you your results in two and a half days, I want the rest of the week off because it was supposed to be a week-long project. Right. And, and so, and, and so that tension about what is, what does it even mean to be lazy? Like, and, and is laziness even a thing? Like, I don't think laziness is even a thing. Mm -mm. I think it's, I I think it's this toxic word in our culture that's used to further marginalize people who are already somehow marginalized. It's often used against um, people who are hourly, hourly wage workers and against people who are disabled and against people who are fat and none of it fucking applies. It just, Oh, none of it applies. So true. And I mean, that's, that's something like, I mean, I, oof, 
oh, so much here, so much gold to just just discuss because because <laughs> that's also the process of reframing. Reframing is about also reclaiming language, breaking the language down because your words really matter. They matter so much. How you talk about yourself really matters. How you mm-hmm. think about yourself matters. When you're talking to yourself, when you're talking to others about yourself, like if you're always talking about yourself in negative terms, chances are you think about yourself in negative terms. And like some of those negative terms, for example, like fat, fat is a word that has been used in my lifetime to diminish me. It has been used as a, as a way to break me down, to shut me up, to put me in my place, quote unquote. Um, And one of the first things that I did when I started this journey of accepting, learning to accept my body was you start using that word, breaking that down, breaking that word down and start using that word to describe myself. Because in the end, it's a fucking adjective. It doesn't mean anything except for my body is large, which it is. And that shouldn't be something that hurts me because it is true. I do have a big fat body. So how do I break that word down and reclaim it so that it doesn't feel negatively? Because um, uh, Mother Audre Lorde, um, a fantastic quote from Audre Lorde where she says, Oh, what did she say? She said, um, nothing that I accept about myself can be used to diminish me. Mm. And that's true. That is so mm. true. Is so I was true. like, talk about it. Yes. <laughs> but basically, I mean, um, you call me fat today. I don't care what you mean by it. I'm going to be, yes, it's true. It's, it's true. I am fat. And there's no charge. I have no charge. It doesn't matter what you're throwing at me with that fat word. Like, I don't feel any charge when it hits me because I don't feel a charge around it. And so that's what reframing is about, is reclaiming language to change the language, change the thinking, change the programming underneath it. Or like, you know, build a blockade, (laughs) make it look prettier or somehow like make it look more accepting to you so that you are no longer being harmed by these thoughts and these words and, and these things. Um, because the language is, is so important. I mean, we can't talk about something. We can't move forward with any kind of idea if we don't have words for it. It's why it's very important to call, you know, um, it's, it's not a vagina, people. It's a vulva. Generally, we're talking about the vulva. We're talking about the outside part, you know, <laughs> like, you know, but we're using the word vagina and it's like terrible for the simple fact that, you know, it's a quote unquote colloquialism. But the fact of the matter is, is it's inaccurate. So in the end, like everybody kind of knows what we're talking about, but it's not good to only kind of know. It's better, always better to actually know what we're talking about that's why it's important to use the correct words for the correct things and just like you know laziness as a thing as a concept um it's bullshit it's all bullshit and you were right to say that because it's just an application that's meant to harm right right and you know coming out of the queer community we have all these ongoing conversations about about queerness and mm-hmm. can we use the word queer? Can we reclaim it? Our elders can't. Like that's an ongoing conversation. Right. Some of our some of our elders simply cannot reclaim it. 
It is too loaded. It's too fraught. It's the name that they were beaten by, literally. And yes. and there's too much trauma wrapped up in it. I mean, trauma. Oh, let's talk about power in cultures and systems. But, right. But but I think what's so important to me, I, I use queer because it fits me. And mm-hmm. that's the that's the place that I have to get with any language that I'm reclaiming is to get to the point where it's not just, okay, I accept it but get all the way over into, I would not give up this word if you gave me the chance to do so. It's my <laughs> yes. word. Absolutely. That's rec- that's the reclamation. That's reclamation. Yeah. This word means mm. who I am and it has things embedded in it that no other word has for me that are important to me, that are important to me in the way that I express my identity. And so for me, that's the richest place to be. Yes, you can get to a place like, like the way I feel about the word bisexual is like, eh, it's fine. Like I will, I don't want bisexual erasure to be a thing. So I'm going to show up and talk about bisexuality. And if somebody says it's bi-visibility day, I'll show up. But bi isn't really my word the word that is really my word that really talks about the way that I'm outside of structures, the way that I rebuild structure, break down and rebuild structures with the bones of the, of the oppressor, right? Like that to me is embedded (laughs) in the word queer. Yeah. Is that I take something and I take it apart and I put it back together and I make it, I make it a source of power and that, isn't in the word bisexual for me, but it is in the word queer. And those conversations are ongoing. And I, I'm drawing on queerness because we've got, so because language conversations in the queer universe are so, so endemic and so important. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I believe that for sure. I mean, like just around the word queer, um, for years, like I, I've identified as bisexual, but it just didn't feel right because I live in, um, I live in a very heteronormative lifestyle. I live a very heteronormative, I have a very heteronormative relationship. Um, and like, I didn't want to call myself queer because I felt like I was taking away from someone else. You know, like I don't live that lifestyle that looks queer. So I don't have a place here. Um, and and it was, I mean, it, it's an interesting journey to go on when you're reclaiming or accepting things, especially when you're talking about language, um, for the simple fact that um, there's a delicacy in the nuance required because there are some things that people would love to call themselves, uh, which actually are harmful to other people. Um, and then there are other things that are not. So, you know, I mean, this is, I mean, I think there's a lot there and that also delves really deeply, I think, into the, the queer community and the, and the conversation around language. But, but like, you know, for example, lots of people calling themselves queer because they're in, you know, polygamous relationships is something that tends to be 
polygamous, sorry, polyamorous. Polygamy <laughs> <laughs> just rolls off the tongue so nicely. I mean, po- 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 yeah. Polygamy is this whole other universe, right? Like polyamorous own space. Man, I, I like to say, I always, I don't know. I, I liked the show Big Love um, mm-hmm. for those who are old enough to remember. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, but I mean, like polyamory is like, an interesting thing, an interesting phenomenon, and something that is not new. Uh, it's always been around in some way, shape, or form. But like a lot of, you know, heteronormative style polyamorous couples are trying to call themselves queer, which in in some ways it is true. It is queer what they are doing because it is outside of the norm. But you know, I guess now I'm out of my lane a little bit um, <laughs> talking about this because, you know, is that really queer or not? This is not what we're here to talk about. This is not, this is not my work. I think, I think that's an interesting place bringing it back to power again. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting, <laughs> I had a feeling this conversation was going to be like this, where we were going to be like, Oh, this is super <laughs> interesting. Oh, right. Power. Oh, that's super. Oh, right. Power. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that, and I'm I I'm just gonna say that I am super looking forward to staying in touch with you because clearly we have conversations yes. we need to have. But yes, I, please. I I think that there's this thing where there are a bunch of things. First of all, I think liberals are super uncomfortable with holding power. That's part of why I'm having these conversations. Oh. Um, and so. Oh. When you say to a liberal person, a socially liberal person, especially in the United States, when you say to them, you have power, they flinch back from it. And then they go looking for some way to identify with some marginalized community so that they can feel like they don't have as much centralized power. So they're not the man, right? And we've been carrying this around at least since the 60s, possibly before that. So so you take somebody and then and then there is the actual experience of marginalization in polyamory for example which I'm not out of my lane talking about um, is is that is that you know in polyamory even if you are I mean my the my order of operations and my coming out process has has been such that I would have never known polyamory when I didn't already identify as queer. But, but even if you identify as um, straight and you've got a kind of heteronormative model of polyamory, which I will just say is really hard for people to maintain over time. Like my experience <laughs> of among polyamorous people is that eventually somebody falls in love with somebody that doesn't have the, you know, gender expression or plumbing they yeah. were expecting. And and that's a natural result of of allowing I mean, how you not? Right? People are so amazing. And so what, what, happens, what happens is that you start out with people who think that they're straight and then they're like, oh, but there's this one person. And of course, in our culture now, it's much easier than it was when I came out in like 1994. And even much more, that was much easier than when, you know, my elders came out in the 70s and the 60s and the 20s and going back. But like anytime we've been under this, you know, kind of, Christianity-driven, bounded, anti-queer space. It's been hard to come out in one way or another, right? And so, so when you first, so first of all, polyamory tends to 
open people to the fact that they're queer. But the other thing is that that there is a queerness, there is a marginalization, there is a, if we define queer as being outside the norm as building structures that suit us rather than having to suit ourselves to the structures, if we understand that as queerness, then, then yeah, there's a, there's a queerness to polyamory. And so the question is, when we're in spaces that, that are trying badly, but are trying to elevate marginalized people, and people are kind of flocking to marginalized identities because they're uncomfortable with being in the center of the power system. Like, are they rejecting power or are they just reaching for the new locus of power in the liberal community? Ooh, that's an, ooh, that's juicy. So that <laughs> brings me to the first interesting thing that I find about power is, um, so there's that saying, you know, that everybody knows, which is, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and I have no idea where I got this from. I read it somewhere or it was in something that I watched or something. Um, but it basically said, actually, this is not true. Power actually doesn't corrupt. Power reveals. And I was like, oh, that's that's juicy. That's interesting there. Um, because if you're going to be, if you're a shitty person when you're poor, you're not going to magically be a lovely person who's very generous and open when you have power and money. Um, you know, but also in saying that, like the thing that is most interesting about this whole idea of, of power being something that reveals the nature of someone is how power tends to reveal negative things. Um, power doesn't generally make someone more caring and giving, um, which I think is super interesting. And, and, and I can say that, you know, because I know that there, there are definitely going to be exceptions because that's, the way of the world there is always an exception um however like if we look at the world entier like we look at the whole world like essentially the people who have power the people who have money they are generally not doing nice things for other people they are not you know giving the 0.001% of their fortune to have clean water in Flint. They are not, you know, trying to do things like solve systemic poverty, you know, um, or the majority of them are, right. You know, they're trying to do things like, dude, let's go to the moon. I mean, like, I fucking want to go to the moon too. That'd be awesome. I, yes, please. However, like, what the fuck am I doing on the moon when there are people who are living in the richest country in the world and they can't afford basic fucking things like health care? You know, I mean, what what is that? What is that? I don't understand that. So I, I just <laughs> That's I a failure that, of ethics. I find that super fascinating. Oh, it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. Um why, I mean, I'm sure that someone probably can answer this question for me, but why is it um I mean, this is this is something super interesting to me. But but why is it the more powerful that we become, the less human we become in some ways? Is that um, true, though? 
my contention, so so I'm going to bring us around to this because I've only got about 10 more minutes and I really want to get there, okay. um, is my contention is that the thing that keeps us human is not lack of power, but community. Mm-hmm. Or that allows us to be inhumane, right? Like we look at certain national leaders at this time and they've, they've collected around each other, right? There are a whole bunch of national leaders who are all behaving in inhumane ways and they're reinforcing that with each other. But yeah. I believe that if we place ourselves as leaders, as power holders, if we look at ourselves as the holders of power, and if we place ourselves in communities that are, that are, engaged with ethics that have that have strong ethics that it becomes very difficult for us to lose our humanity i think not i think i agree with this i definitely agree with this andrea renee johnson says relating humanizes um yes and i, I think that's, that's very true that's so true, right? Um, being in relationship and and being honest and being vulnerable, being open, being accountable to others, being in community with others, like giving a shit, you know, like caring and and caring for others really helps you stay human. And I just and and that 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 brings me back to my 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 three things that are interesting about power is just like you know. Um, why do so many, how are, are so many powerful people drawn to the dark side? You know, <laughs> like how, how is that a thing? How is that? There are so many more of them than there are people who are trying to use their power to uplift. Um, and I guess the answer to that is greed, but, <laughs> you know, but, 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 um, like, okay, but, but let's be real here. Like as as a human being, don't don't we all? I know that I do. Don't we all feel that seductive draw to something that would be um, more pragmatic than ethical? Like I feel the pull. <sighs> I just feel a stronger pull somewhere else. But I would be lying if I didn't say I felt that pull. I mean, I definitely get a slight itch every time I see um, like a, like a, like an armored car <laughs> doing a transport. You know, I'm just like, I, I, I remember um, dead presidents, that wonderful movie from the nineties, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm just like, Oh, I could totally, I could, that would be great. I just need like one bag of the money, maybe two, but I mean, like totally. I mean, I totally have that that pull, but of course, like, you know, there I am pulled by other things and and um but like or that or that thing the French has a really good phrase for it and I can't remember what it is, but like the pull of the void when you're standing on the edge of of like a really tall thing and you look over and you're like, I could just tip off this. That would be interesting. And then you're like, I don't I, I actually want to do that. I'm afraid of heights that would never happen to me. I would never <laughs> get to the um, I, I need, I need very, very, uh, I need, I need clear boundaries, you know, when there's an edge, I, I need to know, like, there's a secure railing, um, I might not get that far, but, but yeah, I mean, it's just, power, you asked me, like, um, 
you asked me this question about power, uh, which I forgot the question, but power scares the hell out of me. <laughs> it, it just does. And, and I think that's, I think, a, something that is pretty universal. Um, having power, the idea of having power scares me. Um, it scares me because of the examples that I have in front of me that, that show me that power is not necessarily a positive thing. Um, but, but it also scares me because like with power comes influence and, and so like there's responsibility there, you know, um, that that's, that's big because if I, if I say something stupid, on a normal is stupid is an ableist term, but if I say something completely nonsense that 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 would maybe harm people um, in my kitchen to my husband, there's probably not anyone that's going to be harmed. But if I say it on my podcast and like the four people who subscribe, um, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> the the four. Teen, the fourteen people who subscribe, um, the listen to people it who and subscribe. Oh, that'd be nice. That'd be really nice. But um, well, you know, that. whoever's listening to it, right. oh gosh, oh. right? Because because we're right here, people. We're right here in that moment <laughs> of you owning your power. Yeah. Okay. Right, we're we're right here I, in I that. Say things. <laughs> okay, I say things and people listen to me. Um, and I yeah. do them in a place, I do them in a place where, uh, these things don't go away. I do them on internet and, and like online, nothing never dies. Uh, you can always, you know, courtesy of Wayback Machine or somebody done saved it somewhere and screenshotted it somewhere. Um, data lives forever, uh, for the most part. Um, unless you want to get real technical, but either way, data lives forever. Online is forever in a way that it has never been before. Like, you know, Voltaire wrote some things and supposedly he's like really awesome. And like, if we burned all the Voltaire books, uh, eventually his stuff would die. But internet somehow until electricity is no longer a thing, um, internet's always going to be there. And so like what I say online like what i'm saying right now we're recording this it's going to go into the wider world where i have no control over who's going to listen to it how often or what they're going to going to get out of it and respond to it or how they're going to respond to it like there's a lot of responsibility there um there's if I'm an ethical person, um, and I and I try I, I try to be it's one of my values. I'd like to be ethical. Um, I I need to be conscious of how this power that I'm having this this audacity that I have to say these things out loud and record them and put them out on internet um, how that can affect other people both positively and negatively. Um, and, and like, I also have to realize that there is also 
the possibility, like the reality of accountability. Like I have to be accountable. Like I'm going to be held accountable because somebody's going to hear it and drag me on Twitter. Um, and though I'm not on there very often, uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes that stuff breaks through to other places. And, and so like, you know, um, there's so much there. Like I have to pay attention because I actually do care. Like, um, as much as I try to practice, like, you know, um, I was say non-attachment. That's so not true. I am so attached to all my things and all my content. Um, I try to do my best to focus on my impact more than my intent um, and try to align them as best I can. But I have no control over my impact. I know that. And so I just do the fucking best that I can and understand that I have a responsibility and that I have a power and I have to own that and I have to be a careful steward of it. And I think that it's fucking exhausting. (laughs) It's fucking exhausting because like, you know, there are some people who get on YouTube, for example, or podcast or whatever, and they just rant about whatever the hell is on their head and they get lots of views and lots of clicks and likes and shares. Um, but is that helping? And some some of these are helping. Some of them are helpful because, you know, they're ranting about things that need to be ranted about. However, like more often than not, they're ranting about things that matter not at all. So I'm just trying to be a careful steward of the things that I put out into the world because I want my work ultimately, like my work ultimately, like at its base is to work toward a place of liberation where everyone gets to be who the fuck they are without strings or gatekeeping or, or like, you know, is this normal or is that not normal? Um, I'm getting to, I want, I'm working toward a place where all of us can be free. And I like that idea. And I want that so badly for everyone um, that the expense, the energy that I put into this careful stewardship mm, is somehow worth it. Perfect. Perfect. I I ordinarily (laughs) ask my guests for last words, but that was so perfect. I'm not even going to ask you to add anything to that except to remind people where you can, they can find you again. Oh my gosh. Ah, thank you. Um, so like I'm mostly on Instagram. I am Tyana Dodson on Instagram. I recently changed my handle. So, uh, yeah, come find me on Instagram. I am Tyana Dodson. Um, you can also find me on Facebook where I am less, um, but uh, I am Tiana the Coach on Facebook, and you can always find me or find my stuff on my website, which is tianadotson.com. Um, and for the most part, I keep my website up to date. So if you can't find me on social media or you're not a social media person, um, come hang out on my website and click around. You'll find some things. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been 
an incredibly delightful conversation. I, um, I, you know, we've never spoken before and it's always interesting doing a podcast interview when you've never had a conversation with a person before and now you're recording. (laughs) And, and, uh, and I just want to say this has been one of the surprising, delightful, pleasurable, um, opportunities for me. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Thank you so much for being here, for being in this space, for being willing to go there, to be vulnerable, to say what's actually true and what's actually on your heart. And, uh, and I look forward to future collaborations. Take care. Oh God. Yes, you do the same. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support PowerPivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.